0: Welcome to another exciting episode of The Nuclear View, a weekly podcast of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, where we want to advance peace, promote stability, and remind you to think deterrence. The views of the guests are their own. Welcome back to another great episode
1: of The Nuclear View. And as the intro says, of course, it's a podcast of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, And, of course, I am Adam Lowther, along with Jim Petrosky and Curtis McGiffin. And we are here to entertain you for the next half hour as we talk about a topic near and dear to all of our hearts. And that, of course, is does the United States have the right nuclear arsenal to effectively deter Russia and China? And I'll tell you, gents, What spurred me to bring this up as a topic for today, for today's show is there was an article that Peter Husey wrote uh, last week, what does the Pentagon truly need for nuclear deterrence to stop Russia and China, which is essentially the question we're asking. And then there was a Mark Schneider released his most recent report on the exact number of nuclear weapons that Russia has and the capabilities. And so between those two, it seemed like a really good topic, particularly there was an also a controversial article in The Hill that talked about, is it time to end the war in Ukraine? And, you know, is there some potential for this escalating to nuclear conflict? So all of that meshed together Seems to be it's a great topic for discussion. So let me turn it over to you, Jim, and ask you sort of first if, if you could share sort of your thoughts on this question about where the U.S. arsenal, because we're not going to start getting our first, you know, modernized weapons and, and delivery vehicles until 2030, and then it won't be till 2042 that we're done. Whereas Mark Schneider's pointed out, the Russians are like 92%, 94% done with their modernization and the Chinese are just growing like crazy. So how do you see this challenge and this problem that we're facing? Thank you, Adam.
2: Yeah. So I like this topic, uh, but I will sound probably like a broken record because I'll say it again. Here's your peace dividend once again, um, one, in questioning how you say, do we have enough weapons to stop Russia and China uh, so far to deter them? To military, deter, them, yeah, so deter them. Yeah, to deter them uh, from using, obviously, uh, nuclear weapons and going to a, a great power war. Uh, you know, first of all, so far we have because we haven't gone there. The question is where the future holds, you know, what the future holds. And I'll say the one thing that really. Looks interesting, and you you talk about Peter Hughes. He has this article out, and he's really referring to things that have happened in the past. And so, we're not getting it, it seems like we're not getting any better. We have a plan, uh, a plan for building, uh, modernizing our weapons, uh, providing more capability uh, to be able to launch uh, uh, our, our weapons. And the major issue here is we're behind a power curve, and that behind the power curve with the addition of China. Russia. And let's not forget, we also have North Korea and Iran, who are also playing a role in the number of moles we'd have to whack if we get into a shooting war with nuclear weapons. And so the objective, of course, have enough out there to ensure that no one's going to use them. So there's this queuing thing where queuing is basically, you know, if you stop a process, we stopped for example, in 1992, we stopped the process of building new nuclear uh, pits for our weapons. And we turned all that in- infrastructure down. We got our peace dividend over it. But to rebuild that takes time. And the problem is that Russia never turned that down. They were building new tactical nuclear weapons. They kept the process going. They kept the infrastructure there. They kept the capability there. And we're playing that catch up. So do we have enough? uh Every day we're falling further behind. And that, I think, is the key piece that Peter Husey brings in here. I, I, I will also say, before I turn it back, is he also talks about the change in our deterrence infrastructure, primarily the bombers being pulled off alert, et cetera, which now increases the time it takes to basically respond. And so those are the pieces I think that everybody, you know, all of our listeners need to think about when we look at how we we can deter, and I appreciate you correcting me on that, Adam, because I agree. It's not just, are we stopping them? Stopping them from what? We are deterring them from taking an action with nuclear weapons. And that goes into the mix because it becomes more dangerous the less we deter because someone may take a chance.
1: Yeah, you you bring up a good point. And let let me just read one sentence from Mark Schneider's new report. And he says, a large Russian numerical advantage, particularly when combined with thousands of low yield and low collateral damage nuclear weapons, could encourage the belief that nuclear weapons can be substituted for precision conventional weapons, increasing the risk that Moscow will introduce nuclear weapons into a conflict. And this, I don't know about you, Curtis, but for me, this is really worrying Because this is one area where both the Chinese and the Russians, like with the, you know, the Chinese have DF-26 intermediate range ballistic missiles and they have some other capabilities where they're going to go, you know, they're going to go non-strategic and they're going to say, hey, this is non-strategics and therefore this is not, you know, uh, strategic nuclear war. So you can't respond with your strategic capabilities And we're going to be in a very difficult position as we try to say, well, we'll respond with, uh, you know, JASM ER and we'll respond with, you know, other conventional precision strike capabilities. I I don't know. I see this is particularly challenging. I think, Jim, you wanted to say something you want. And then Curtis, we'll go to you after.
2: Yeah. Before we jump it over to Curtis, I'd also say that. We've fallen from a mindset, and it came out of the husey's article um on looking at us as having nuclear d- dominance and I really like the comedy he says be, uh, he has in his article that says we need an ability to fight and win a nuclear war that's the important goal as long as we know we can fight and win a nuclear war, we can prevent it because as soon as we think we can't fight or win a nuclear war then that's when we're at risk of having one.
3: Yeah. I Curtis? couldn't agree with you more. First of all, thanks. It's good to have you back, Adam. Uh, I, I think uh, I'd like to describe us as infotainment rather than entertainment, <laughs> but nonetheless, I'm <laughs> um, glad to have you back in the host chair. Uh, I really didn't fit in it very well, but uh, uh, you do. Uh, it's molded to your, uh, to your body mass. So let's, uh, let's, let's get after this. Um, I think, um, of course, you guys are all uh, you know, uh, totally accurate and, and correct in your assessments of all of this. But I want to take this to the uh, one step further, and and in the Husey article, you know, he re- he uh, uh, really gets after uh, Admiral Richard and and some of the great thoughts that he had in 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 his proceedings article in twenty twenty one, and one of the things that I think that Admiral Richard brought out that is couldn't be more accurate is that we have to not only get this modernization done quickly, but we also have to start changing our thought process on this, our frame of mind, right? And, and, uh, and Adam Richard says from his article, assessing risk is more than just assessing likelihood. It also involves accounting for outcomes. We cannot dismiss or ignore events that currently appear unlikely, but should they occur would have catastrophic consequences. This is sort of that bolt out of the blue scenario, right, that we've talked about in, in other podcasts where when you look at, at various uh, ways that the Pan- Pentagon might think about, uh, you know, Possible futures and where is the most likely threat or least likely threat, most likely consequences of those threats, and these sorts of things. They always sort of kind of write off the bolt or the blue attack uh, of a nuclear weapon, sort of that Cold War uh, idea. And the reality is, and I think Admiral Richard is warning us in 2021 that that's likely, you know, bad strategy. And it is, it is. It for it lulls us into a false confidence and I think in some sense really leans us to some sort of hubris uh, in the idea that this will never happen and uh, I, I can't there's all kinds of things that, that go on in the world that we think will never happen but then do and uh, are and certainly are of much less consequence than a than a, a large-scale nuclear exchange um, with your question to the 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 smaller IRBM type, you know, DF twenty six nukes in, with China. I think again, we have to think about the un, the way that they think about the use of nukes, right? And that uh, they're bigger bombs in some cases. But I also believe that they think that non non-str- non strategic nuclear warfare is possible. Um, and uh, and as long as they're not striking American soil, they may feel like that they're justified and that we're not justified in responding because it's not strategic. Now Guam is in the gray area, right? <laughs> but uh, but if you're if they're using nukes on on uh, empty islands or on uh, on uh, uh, nations that are foreign to us in the Indo Pacific, uh, it'll be a real test of our decision making process. As I've always said, the thing that that uh, I believe that our senior leaders in Washington D.C. worry about today uh, is not the nuclear explosion or detonation that might go off in and around Ukraine. It's the decision they have to make the next day and how to respond. That's what scares them the most.
2: Yeah. But Curtis, would you, would you though say, you know, uh, and, and many times we talk about this tactical versus strategic nuclear weapons. I've always talked to people about WMDs, whether chemical, biological, nuclear, nuclear has a special place. And I think once that genie's out of the bottle, in whatever size it is, um, I think that opens the door for escalation.
3: And that's the fear that I would have in those kind of scenarios. Do you see that the same way? Ironically, you know, nuclear weapons and the taboo of not using them, Uh, is, is an escalation management tool, so to speak. And your comment is sort of the opposite to that, right? That, Hey, once we, once somebody uses it, everybody's going to start to use it. And that's when escalation management becomes even more important. Some say escalation dominance. I'm, I'm not sure that anybody has that, but escalation dominance is about psychology. It's how far are you willing to go and not necessarily how far can you go? And uh, I think uh, you can have all the great megatonnage in the world. If you're not willing to go there, you don't have escalation dominance. Uh, and so and and again, you know, we here at NIDS are not nuclear zealots. We're not advocating for nuclear war. We are a totally antithesis to that. What we are advocating for is the classic Herman Kahn statement of the best ready. The best way to look ready is to be ready. And that includes yep. will and capability. Yeah, but Curtis and Adam, maybe uh, you've made me think
2: about these things many times, Curtis, in a way you approach it, but I'll go the other way with you and and say, but when you say how far are you willing to go, you have to be able to go there. You can't tell me today, oh, you need to go up to a a level of nuclear weapons and or response to bring fear into my adversary if I don't have that capability in hand. And that's sort of, the place where we are, when I talk about that queuing, it takes time to build that capability. You've got to have it before you need it. You can't suddenly come up with it. So
3: real quick, before I let Adam come back in, <laughs> it, it, it is, you're completely, you're completely right, Jim, but I'll give you the one caveat difference to that for you and our listeners to consider. And that is North Korea only has a few weapons but they are successfully deterring the mighty united states because we are unwilling to accept that risk in other words his uh, kju's ability to nuke 3 to 5 cities on the west coast are way more painful to us than our ability to nuke 5 to you know 3 to 5 to 10 cities in north korea not that there were any real you know however those numbers measure out the point is is that we're much less risk tolerant so he has technically the ability to deter us with a much smaller arsenal. And that's because of the, that risk and will uh, imbalance the asymmetric um, value to that. What do you think of that, Adam?
1: Well, I, I mean, so you both brought up some good points that, and this is something that Peter talks about. And I had a discussion earlier today with some folks and this idea that it is that for advocates of disarmament that they don't understand they see it as insane to build a capability and a strategy and an operational plan that will fight and win a nuclear war and so this whole idea that we we You know, we have to we have to have this religious dogma that you can't fight and you can't win a nuclear war. Well, that's how you get yourself into one. Because you fail to deter adversaries when you when you clearly signal them that you don't have the the capability or will to fight and win. You have to be the biggest, meanest, son of a gun on the street in order to convince your adversaries that it's not today not today. And that's part of it. And, and I, you know, I struggle is, you know, in thinking about this, how do, how do American disarmament advocates not seem to fathom that this is an important element of how you actually prevent a nuclear war? That, that was sort of one point you made, Jim. And then Curtis, there was, there was a point at which you were talking about you know, Chinese capability and part of what, and you talk about will, and it seems as though much like Jim had said earlier with the fight and win that we don't even want to be in that game. And so we're signaling to our adversaries that we're, you know, we're not even going to try to match you. We're not going to try to meet you there that we're going to be, you know, we're going to use almost a Gandhi esque sort of peace, you know, defiance through through peaceful means, and that we expect that the Russians and the the Chinese are going to buy that, and we know that you know, for example, the Russians see the use of tactical nuclear weapons as You know, their only alternative. They don't have the conventional capability. So, therefore, they have to rely on it. And they do not believe the United States. They believe they'll respond with a conventional capability, not a nuclear one. The Chinese as well. The Chinese, you know, they have an active defense strategy. That active defense strategy is one in which preemption is considered a defensive act and completely and wholly justified. And that's part of their plan. And so, therefore, once we get inside the second island chain and and the first island chain, we are the aggressors, and they are merely – in their own minds, anyways. That's right. They're merely defending themselves, but with the capabilities that they have. And That's and that's something we don't seem to get.
3: Right, and there's no taboo in their in their definition about not you know, well. I'm not going to use you know this weapon to protect my my inner domain, my my near abroad as I see it in my in my uh, national interest. So, um, yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. It's just a difference in perspective, and and, yeah, and I think we do ourselves a disservice
1: by not countering those who who attribute moral will and moral capability to a weapon they're they're just tools there's nothing moral or immoral about them i mean the day that the earth gets invaded by hostile aliens and we defeat that uh, hostile alien force with our nuclear weapons that'll be the day their their nuclear weapons are a great thing you know when our ICBMs launch into outer space and start destroying their in, inbound ships, but you can't attribute morality to a, a tool, and it, because it fundamentally right. changes the dynamic, and you can't have a rational conversation about them.
2: Yeah, Adam, but i I do like I do like the way you frame the argument on the on the disarmament community who looks at. Nuclear weapons, and some that you know look don't see us as a peace organization because we talk about nuclear weapons. But if you think about where we are in history as a country, we really haven't talked about these things very openly in society for a fairly long time. You have generations of people who haven't had to come to grips with the fact that we are still in a very difficult world where where people aggressors will still take advantage of others in whatever situation they're in and because of that it is a different way of thinking and i'm of course being president of nids i want to highlight the fact that that's part of our big mission part of this podcast to get people to think how do we look at this differently why do we think it differently Why does Adam and Curtis and Jim see this as we see it? And it's more than just the three of us. We represent a very large community of people that see deterrence as valuable, especially through our nuclear deterrent. And we also see that there is a moral aspect to preserving peace for mankind, regardless whether the aliens invade us from wherever you think they're invading us, Adam. We'll talk about that later. But anyway, you know, that. But that is really important to our audience to understand there are people that think differently and you have to have an understanding of the process and the problems that are associated with that. It's not an easy solution, but it needs to be thought out. And that's why we want people to think
3: deterrence. Right. But Let me add this. I think we have to move beyond, uh, you know, we often uh, we often get accused of being, you know, you need to get beyond your Cold War thinking. Well, my response to that is, is you need to get beyond your post-Cold War thinking because that era is over too. And this world has changed dramatically. And so those who are still living in the post-Cold War era, you got to wake up. We are now in, whether you want to call it the era of strategic competition uh, or, or something else. Um, and, and, and uh, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to find my own term for, to describe this new world, but um. But this, this, as again, as Admiral Richard discusses, you know, this, this, this strategic competition, which Keith Payne also doesn't like, because it sort of sounds like a a game, like we're in a game, but there's no referees in this game. Uh, And so, and and as Admiral Richard says, this game doesn't end in after nine innings. It's perpetual, right? And the goal is not to win. The goal is to be the dominant player.
1: You know, it's, you know, it's, you know, we do nuclear knowledge as another podcast. And perhaps what we ought to do on one of those is we should have a nuclear knowledge that talks about the Russian and the Chinese view of war. And so for the Russians and the Chinese there, there's no such thing as peace. The Russians and the Chinese are at war with us right now, That's but correct. for them, war does not have to be, you know, this kinetic, you know, it's, it, you know, operates within, um, you know, within the laws of war, within LOAC. It, 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 you know, that's not war for them. War for them is persistent. It's that you ha- always have an adversary, and you are always at war, always trying to defeat that adversary through non-kinetic and kinetic means. And we don't seem to get that. We have a very crisp. Definition of when we're at war and when we're at peace. And until we realize that that's not what our adversaries think, we're always going to be at a disadvantage because when our adversaries are undermining, you know, whether they're interfering in elections, whether they're hacking, whether they're engaging in all sorts of cyber espionage disruption, when they're lazing satellites, when they're doing all these kinds of things that they do for them, this is this is warfare. It's a low level of warfare, but it's warfare nonetheless. Whereas for us, it's an irritant we do nothing about.
2: Yeah, since someone said one time that uh, our adversaries see war and peace as a continuum, both. That they, you know, they're just mixed along and they just continue to move along. Be, and that's sort of the human struggle, right? We're always, we're always trying to advance ourselves and, and, and whether you like it or not, when you advance, someone else is behind and vice versa. And the problem is, just like a business, when you stop advancing, another business will overtake you, and then you don't get to call the
1: shots. I would let me challenge you because I would say that's how they see it. That's how yes. our adversaries see it. I mean, I think you and I all know that. I mean, we can we can grow that pie together, which is what we're here to do at NIDs is grow this nuclear deterrence advocate pie. And and I mean, I guess we kind of want the, where we grow, we want the disarmament crowd to diminish. So maybe it is a zero sum game in some respects, <laughs> but, but it doesn't have to be, but that's the way our adversaries see it. But it's sort of an yes. un-American perspective because that American perspective is make the pie bigger and we all win.
3: Well, is it 1984 that's uh, you know kept kind of saying war is peace, peace is war, um, and uh, so it is a different frame of mind. And and competition does sort of in in you know sort of infer that there maybe not necessarily winners and losers, but there are those who are leading and those who are who are lagging, um, and that may that may move and change periodically through time um, as you you know develop access or technology or relationships or whatever the case might be markets, uh, that might get you back up to the leader from being a laggard. So I think that that is, is definitely where we are, but the adversary doesn't always see it that way. Uh, because if you lead too long, uh, then they feel that that is a, that is a loss, not a lag. And, and so then that sort of, you know, drives these, uh, what do you call it? A serial aggression, uh, as we as we've experienced. And talking about peace and war, I mean, since the end of the Cold War, I'm not sure that we've experienced much peace here, even in the United States. I mean, you yeah. think through this, we rolled from Gulf War One into Somalia and various points of conflict and war, Desert Fox and the Balkans, and uh, and boom, 911 happens. And, uh, so the peace dividend and, uh, the, and the resulting, the, the, the nuclear holiday as, uh, as, uh, General Herensack used to refer to it, uh, you know, that we really didn't get to enjoy much of that, but we are now struggling to sort of rebuild what we, what we gave away or lost. And now, even though we have a much smaller military, uh, I think I just read, you know, we're rolling $2 trillion deficits. Not the debt, the deficits. That's just, uh, it's unsustainable. And so we've got to figure out how we're going to secure our national interests um, and, and do it at a smaller cost. That is not by eliminating the nuclear arsenal or its modernization. Those are pennies on the dollar. It is that conventional capability that is very expensive.
1: Let me just point out something that you said. half. Of this year's annual deficit, half of one year's deficit pays for the nuclear arsenal and modernization for the next 30 years. Half of one year's deficit. Right. Right, right. So for those that say it's unaffordable and that, you know, we need to, we've got to start cost cutting. And the way we're going to cost cut is to, you know, cut nuclear spending. That won't solve that problem. It won't even make a, it won't even, you know, make a slight bump in that problem
3: that's right that's right so it, it's a significant difference uh we've run the numbers here at nids we you know just for our listeners and just in a very cursory example you know the the the, the cost of building enough conventional yield uh to replace one of our smallest nuclear yields is a comparison of um of about 72 billion dollars compared to 28 million dollars i mean is is it's just massively more expensive to try to conventionally uh, replace uh, the kinds of yield. And you're still not going to create the fear um, that will prevent war uh, or at least make an autocrat leader think twice about getting engaged. And it also doesn't account for all of the support equipment and aircraft that would be needed to deliver that kind of yield, uh, which was at, which would add to that cost. So, it's too expensive to do this without nukes. It's too expensive not to adjust our thinking, uh, to this new modern, uh, era has now replaced, uh, the post cold war that's over whatever we thought the world was going to be in the, in the nineties and early two thousands, that didn't happen. And it's not going to happen at least under the current status. And so we've got to figure out, uh, and and quickly implement a new strategy, right? Uh, right now, the Biden administration calls it strategic competition. I think it was great power competition under under the Trump administration. Uh, they're both more accurate than the post Cold War. So, uh, and, and so that's just a new world. It's just a new world. So, Curtis, answer my opening question. Okay, do
1: we have the right nuclear arsenal? To deter Russia and China. Are so, we even building the right arsenal for it?
3: So we hear a lot that when, when they're asked, are we building the, the right? And the answer always is, is we're building the minimum cap- capability to deter. But the, the problem yeah. is, is that whatever we're building today is what's got to deter through 2050 or 2070. And we haven't done a very good job just forecasting 20 years in advance. I'm not sure we're going to do very good forecasting 50 years in advance. So I would argue that we are not. We are not because we need a full spectrum complement, um, you know, the, the same kind of capability op- options uh, that President Kennedy had during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And uh, and that engendered an ability to, to really take on on the On the Soviets and the Soviets backed down because they own their only capability was an all or nothing, and they chose not to go all, so they got nothing and they lost Khrushchev lost his his job and uh and Russia realized that the 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 Soviets realized that they have to do something different, and so that what they do they built a full spectrum complement and here we are you know fifty sixty 60 years later and uh, and we've kind of reversed these roles, so we have to we have to build a spectrum that will deter at the lowest levels all the way to the highest levels and you've got to have the capacity to to account for the potential alliance uh in the no limits partnership uh that China and Russia now have
1: Jim same question for you.
3: It's
2: again, forecasting's hard. So that's why I don't play the lottery and I rarely invest in stocks. But I I will say that based upon what our adversaries are doing, their activities are showing us where we are and their activities are definitely pushing to larger numbers and increased capability that we need to react to and we're behind a curve. So- I won't make that full assessment. I'll avoid it. I'll make a good politician someday, maybe. Um, and so that that'll be my answer: to look at what I can control and what we can do, and we look at where we are. And the real question is, what do we do about where we are? So we get so we know where where we need to be to deter our adversary. It's easy to look backwards. I've said this many times. People say, "Oh," and Curtis brought it up earlier. Oh, that's Cold War thinking. And my answer always is. Yeah, but we had no, you know, great power wars during the Cold War. I think that's, you know, aside from the Cold War. But, you know, the Cold War wasn't, you know, the, the number of deaths we had one day and, you know, in D-Day or Normandy or anything else. You know, we we survived that because we stayed on top of it. We need to remain remain there. That's the big the main part.
3: So, so uh, let's ask you the same question, Adam.
2: Yeah, Adam. Let's hear your
1: answer Well, I guess I would just say Hey, we've got integrated deterrence And with integrated deterrence uh, What we're going to use Diplomacy And we're going to use our economic power Yes, sanctions have not done much harm To Russia over the last year Yes, milk is cheaper in Moscow Than it is in Kansas City And yes, gas is still cheaper But We're going to integrate all of those economic and diplomatic and informational means to build integrated deterrence, and once we do that, we're probably not even going to need nuclear weapons anymore. I mean because we'll be so good at all this other integrated stuff that we will deter the russians uh you know through our integrated deterrence so i'm 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 really confident that that's how things are going to work out. So I'm going to say we probably don't even need to modernize anything. Oh, your sarcasm is dripping. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I've been spending a lot of time lately trying to figure out what exactly is integrated deterrence. And how does it work? So uh, it sounds like a future uh, nuclear review topic again, <laughs> or maybe a, a nuclear knowledge topic if we can figure out exactly what it is. Yeah, so do. so <laughs> all well, right, well, very good. Well, gents, uh, it was always a it's pleasure this week as it is every week. So thanks for, for joining us, Jim Petrosky, Curtis McGiffin, and thanks, of course. To you the listeners for joining us on this episode of the nuclear view and as always think deterrence
0: thank you for listening to this week's the nuclear view we hope you found it engaging and valuable the nuclear view is released each wednesday and is a production of the national institute for deterrence studies a 501c3 organization we are dependent upon donations to provide our podcasts Every donation helps keep this and many other deterrence-related activities happening and helps to bring about awareness of the peacekeeping value of U.S. strength and of our national deterrence. We occasionally answer questions from our valued listeners. If you wish to send us questions on a topic, please send your email to asknids at thinkdeterrence.com. That's asknids, one word, the at symbol, and thinkdeterrence, one word.com. If you enjoyed this show, check out our other weekly podcast, Nuclear Knowledge. You can catch all of our podcasts at thinkdeterrence.com under the Deterrence Podcast tab. We thank our producer, Kimberly Charrington, our sponsors, and all the fantastic members of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies for making this podcast possible. Stay tuned next week for another exciting and informative nuclear view, where we want to advance peace, promote stability, and remind
3: you to always Think deterrence.